0: Hello, and welcome to Something Rhymes With Purple. This is a podcast for people who are intrigued by, interested by, in love with language. And it's presented by me, Giles Brandreth, and my friend and colleague... Susie Dent. Susie Dent. And there was a moment's pause because Susie and I, though we can see one another, thanks to the magic of Zoom, we are not in the same room. We're not just six feet apart. We are... 60 or more miles apart. Where are you speaking from, Susie Dent?
1: Same as always. I wish I had something new and novel to tell you, but I don't. I'm still in the same room. The sun is shining, though, and we're going to talk about words and that will make everything bright.
0: Have you had a good week? Who have you seen this week, either through the window (laughs) or in your dreams? Who have been your encounters of the week?
1: Well, I did something interesting on Wednesday. If you know the presenter, Colin Murray, he Uh, had a show on Radio 5 Live on the BBC here in the UK. And he decided that we should dedicate some time to letting people just relax because quite often, you know, towards the end of the evening, whether it's that sort of 10 o'clock, all that's available really is more talk about the pandemic. And that might just depress people's soul a little. So he decided to offer an alternative. And it was a virtual pub in lockdown. So between 10 and 12, I was looking at lots of different faces on the screen, including some fantastic spoken word poets. And we just sat around, there was no script, there was no presenter. We sat around drinking a glass of wine and just chatting, which of course could have gone horribly wrong, but it was actually really nice. And it was really uplifting. And I think people who were listening also found that it just gave them that bit of ventilation time really so that was really fun and i listened to the fantastic spoken word poet called polar who introduced me to the word a uh, univocal lipitude and a univocal uh, poem is one which allows only one vowel and he chose the vowel o and delivered this absolute tour de force. No other vowels throughout this quite long poem were allowed, and it was absolutely fantastic. So that was, that was my Wednesday night. Thoroughly enjoyed it. It's the first time I've ever drunk while working.
0: There was a great craze for univocal work in the 1950s in America, and there was okay. a guy who attempted to do the complete works of Shakespeare, dropping a different letter from each of the plays in turn. And the big challenge was doing Othello without the letter O. Because <laughs> Iago, Othello, there they all are, Desdemona, and he somehow managed it. He spent years doing this. And nobody ever performed these plays and he couldn't quite understand oh, why. Yes.
1: Uh, that's, that's amazing. Now you did something exciting, I know. Wow. You did a charity quiz.
0: Well, it was a wonderful occasion. Again, it was on Wednesday, the same night as you were having your sort of spiritual conversation. Mm-hmm. I was having quite a tense time because I was hosting a quiz for the Riverside Studios, which is a an arts complex in London on the River Thames at Hammersmith. And they've spent several years refurbishing themselves. And they opened at the beginning of this year, brand new, beautiful theatres, several spaces, beautiful cinema screens, uh, television studios. And then within weeks of opening, they had to close. So uh, financial disaster for them. And they decided Uh, to organize a charity evening um, uh, with a quiz. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was going to be like a general pub quiz. And I was just going to ask the questions. It turned out to be a supergalia superstar quiz. I was asking the questions. The questions, though, had been scripted by John Lloyd.
1: QI, QI, John Lloyd, at and also the Museum of Curiosities, which I was on once, which I love, absolutely love.
0: That very same man, the only person in the world to have almost as many BAFTAs as Dame Judy Dench. Uh, Judy Dench has, I think, 11 BAFTAs, and John Lloyd has about 10, which is pretty impressive. Anyway, Dame Judy Dench took part in this quiz. Stephen Fry took part in the quiz. Joe Brand was there. Eddie Izzard was there. You name it. It was full of quiz kings. And so during the course of today, I may share with you one or two of John Lloyd's questions. Some of them were really easy, like, how many muscles are there in the fingers of your hand? And they were multiple choice. How many muscles are there in the fingers of your hand? Are there none? Are there 10, are there 30, or are there 34 muscles in the fingers of your hand? What do you think is the answer?
1: Honest answer, I don't have a clue. Muscles. Yeah, because there's lots of tendons, but are there actual muscles? OK, I'm going to go for broke and say none.
0: None. None. And that shows you how brilliant you are. That's why you are (laughs) Susie Dent, because you're completely right. The 34 muscles that bend the fingers are all in the palm. Ah, That's the trick of the question. How many muscles are in the fingers of your hand? 17 muscles in the palm, 18 in the forearm, but none in the fingers of your hand.
1: That's amazing. And I've told you so many times about the origin of muscle, haven't you? Haven't I, even? There are lots of uh, variants in different languages, but most of them go back to little mouse, because particularly for the Romans, musculus little mouse, they thought that flexing biceps looked a little bit like a mouse. Scurrying around under the skin.
0: I hope you've been doing some homework because you'll remember the other day we got a lovely email from Alexandra Townsend, this, well, whenever it was. And she said, hi, Susie and Giles. I've been living stateside for five years and have just discovered that the Americans use John Doe for a hypothetical person, as us Brits use Joe Bloggs. Just wondering if you could shed any light on the origins of these names. So we thought that might be a bit of a theme for today's podcast. So thank Mm. you,
1: Alex Townsend. Uh, And tell us, have you done the homework? I have done the homework. It's one of those ones where people have lots and lots of theories, a little bit like nursery rhymes, but we don't actually have the definitive answer. But it's such a long history, John Doe, to start with, because... John Doe was regularly mentioned in courts going back to the 14th century, so the reign of King Edward III, uh, for example. So John Doe was the plaintiff and Richard Rowe was the defendant. And they were just taken as generic names. Nobody quite knows why, whether they were real people. I mean, obviously they were notional, but whether they were real people kind of inspiring these names, we don't actually know. In the US...
0: You're telling us that this was was originally in England.
1: It was originally in England. And yes, in the US, uh, it tends to be applied to corpses. So unidentified corpses. There was actually, well, obviously there are the people who are called John Doe who have had lots of unwanted attention. There was one who was questioned apparently repeatedly by airport security staff because they didn't believe that was his real name. So it's a rather unfortunate name to have, but it's the same with Joe Bloggs. We do tend to choose, and this has been a running theme throughout our podcast, actually. We do tend to choose random apparently random names for objects whether it's margaret behind the magpie the robin redbreast we mentioned when we were doing our birds episode whether it's a jack of all trades a steeplejack, a lumberjack etc we tend to land on particular names and donkey is another one that we think that's just a riff on duncan so we don't actually know the precise stories behind them but they have been there for a very very long time so joe
0: blogs when was it first used
1: let me just check that in the OED. I know that we don't quite know, you know, why, why anyone would take John, because you'd think Smith would be a more obvious one. So, as always, I'm going to look it up in the OED. Tap,
0: tap, tap. While you're looking it up in the OED, I'm reminded that in the good old days, we had telephone directories. And then we could have just looked up in the telephone directory to see whether there was a Joe Bloggs. Actually, to see if somebody, I've never met anybody called Bloggs.
1: I don't think I have either, actually which is quite strange. So if you look at Joe, you will see that Joe has been chosen as a generic name for a very long time. So a person in the diggings during the gold rush in Australia was called a Joe in, well, you know, in other countries, countries other than the US, a Joe was a guy from America. Joe College was a college boy. These are all sort of late 19th century. Uh, Joe Blog's actually very recent. Um, it says a name applied to a hypothetical, average or ordinary man. Ninety. 19- 1969. Quote from The Guardian, LSD can be taken by Joe Blocks on a lump of sugar. There you go.
0: I'm amazed that that is, that they're so young. I I assumed it would be a Victorian.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it. There's Joe Blow as well in the US. Joe soap was once applied not very nicely to a mug. So a Very ordinary person. Joe Blake, that's Cockney rhyming slang in Australia for a snake. And of course, we've got Joe Public, haven't we? Which goes back to the 40s. So Joe's had quite a ride in English. Is there a female equivalent of Joe Bloggs? Jane Doe is the certainly in the US. Plain Jane... Et but, you know, as we've talked about before, I think an Abigail was once a maid. That was in Victorian times. So it's quite strange how we land upon these names. But as we're about to discover, hopefully, there are idioms and expressions in English where real people are lurking behind them.
0: Before we do that, can we just send out a message of love to all the people who are called Jane? I don't think I've ever met a Jane who didn't actually use the phrase plain Jane almost within seconds of telling you what her name was. What about Fanny Go Lightly? Where does that come from?
1: Never heard Fanny Go Lightly.
0: <laughs> no. You know, Jane Doe. Oh, who is she? Oh it's well, Fanny Go Lightly. <laughs> I've not heard that before.
1: No. Do you want me to look it up?
0: And I know a character. When, when you these casual names, you may have Joe Blogs. I have Fanny Lightly, and I also have. Oh, it was just Lord Pisspot. Lord Pisspot is one of my favourite characters. Who was it? It was. Oh, it was old oh, Lord Pisspot. When I was when I was an MP, and you referred to some member of the House of Lords whose name you couldn't remember, you said, "Oh, it was oh, you know, Lord Pisspot," and people immediately said, "Oh, Lord Pisspot! Oh, I know him." <laughs> so, just a few more of these sort of anonymous phrases and names of people. What about Billy Nomates?
1: Yeah, I'm going to really disappoint you with all of these because we actually just don't really know who Billy No Mates was or Flaming Nora or Flipping Ada. You know, there, there have been some different ones over the years, but quite why? We don't know. I think Bloody Nora was mentioned in a novel from the 1950s. And then in the late 60s, I don't know if you remember this, It was a sitcom called Nearest and Dearest. Oh, yes. Uh, there was a Nora in that. And the term firmly began in Lancashire, we can see. And then examples of flaming and bleeding came along as euphemisms for bloody. But we think Nora just—it's just a working euphemism for, for hell, really, like Blumenek. And then there was Nora Batty, would not there? That later on, wasn't there Nora Batty from? Was she from Corey? No, maybe she was last of the summer one. Uh, purple people out there are going to be screaming. They their, are that
0: we know nothing.
1: At their devices because we know nothing? And um, Flipping Ada, the same one. First first record of that actually is from D. H. Lawrence. Um, Flipping Ada, but yeah, Billy No mates, the same. Why a Billy? We don't
0: know. What about a clever dick? I'm sometimes called a clever dick, <laughs> which I don't take to be a compliment. I don't think it's meant as a compliment. It's usually when I don't know something. No. Where does that come from, clever dick?
1: Clever dick. You've just, you just reminded me of um, spotty dick, actually.
0: Um, oh, yes, spotted dick. I used to love that at school.
1: Oh, yes, yeah, spotted. Spotted. My dad's absolute favourite pudding as well. Um, he used to have it fried the next morning. I probably shouldn't go there. Can you imagine anything less healthy? Um Clever Dick. Okay, yes, Richard Whiteley, the great late presenter of Countdown, the show that you and I both appeared on lots. Um, he used to be called Clever Dick. So it started off meaning simply a clever or smart person and then quickly became ironical, as it says in the dictionary. So, yeah, why Richard? Who knows? Dick was a, a name for a pudding as well, hence <laughs> Spotted Dick, and that was a regional, a regional term. So it could be an apron made of leather, but also as well as lots of other things, um, a pudding.
0: You get feeling dicky, don't you? And you're not feeling too well. Is that a rhyming slang with sick, dick?
1: Dick, exactly. I think so, yes. You ask me loads of good questions.
0: Well, I'm the the tribune of the people here. We've come to you. You you are, as it were, Muhammad and the mountain, and we've come to you on your mountain, Muhammad, and we want the answers. We want the truth.
1: So, actually, it says origin unknown. That makes me feel a little little bit better. It says, perhaps playing, this is dicky, perhaps playing on its resemblance to tricky or sticky or other sounds with negative connotations. Or it could be an alteration of dickens, as in what the dickens or go to the dickens, which, of course, was a euphemism for the devil. Oh. I love, there's another word that I, expression that I've told you before, if you are feeling a bit dicky, a great regional dialect word, which is flobbly mobbly. You're just feeling a bit meh.
0: I love Flobbly Mobbly. What about okay. in your Dicky? Is your dicky the bow tie or is it the white waistcoat that you're wearing?
1: Uh so okay, it It has meant many items of clothing. Um, So a dicky in the olden days could be a a woman's petticoat. We talked a lot about petticoats, haven't we, Uh, recently. A man's shirt, especially a worn out one. And then in the 19th century, it was a detachable shirt front. So particularly one that was worn as part of formal evening dress. We Um, don't
0: know who the original clever dick was, but do we know who the original smart Alec was?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Yes, now this involves one of my favourite stories. Now, do you know it's re- sometimes it's really really hard to identify not just the people who are lurking behind some of our idioms, but you know the first use of something. Really hard for any lexicographer or word detective. But we think we've nailed this one. Unlike clever Dick or Contrary Mary, etc., Smart Alec, we think does have a namesake uh, behind it, and that man was Alexander Hogue aka Alec Hogue. And he apparently in the 1840s in New York was a celebrated thief who worked in tandem with his wife, who was a prostitute. She was called Melinda and an accomplice who was called French Jack. And together they were they were quite a formidable team and they would fleece unsuspecting visitors to New York City and they share the loot crucially with two police officers who were in on the racket. There are lots of lots of kind of records of exactly what their their strategy was. So one from 1844, this is a a diary. Melinda would make her victim lay his clothes as he took them off upon a chair at the head of the bed near the secret panel and then take him to her arms and closely draw the curtains of the bed. As soon as everything was right and the dupe not likely to heed outside noises, the traitress would give a cough and the faithful Alec would slyly enter, rifle the pockets of every farthing or valuable thing and finally disappear as Mysteriously, as he entered. Anyway, apparently, the fact that he tried to pocket some of the money himself without giving it to his police accomplices was his undoing because the police then turned against him. They nicknamed him Smart Alec, or perhaps not so Smart Alec, and he uh, went to prison together with Melinda.
0: It's a great story. I think it's got it all. It's even got, never mind the coughing major, it's got the coughing Melinda, (laughs) the prostitute.
1: The coughing major, in case those further afield haven't heard of him, he was in a very famous quiz here called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And there's just been a wonderful three-part Uh, drama based on the fact that allegedly one contestant cheated and was aided by a coffer in the audience. Did you see it, Quiz? It was really good.
0: No, because I've got hooked on this French television series called uh, 10%, 10%, or in English, call my agent. It's on Netflix. I'm completely hooked on it. It's good for your French. There's uh, subtitles, so you can follow it whatever yeah. your language. And it's been a huge success in France. It's about a, uh, an actor's movie, movie actor's agency in Paris. It's totally gripping. Now, <laughs> speaking of the prostitute in the 1840s, um, what about a peeping Tom?
1: Oh, yes. Nothing to do with the 1840s this and everything probably to do with Lady Godiva. Um, so Lady Godiva, according to legend, rode naked through the streets of Coventry in protest against her own husband's taxation of the people. And her name is definitely there in the Doomsday book, but she's said to have issued this public order that all doors and windows be shut so no one could see her. I don't quite know what the point of the exercise was, but no one could see her uh, riding through. And Peeping Tom is the name given to a prying tailor who's said to have been struck blind, or in some versions even struck dead, after completely defying that order and watching her secretly through his curtains.
0: He was a bit of a Jack the lad wasn't he
1: he was oh jack the lad yes we've talked about jack the lad i think before have we jack shepherd a famous criminal celebrated in ballads from um, the 18th century um his thievery was fairly standard but it was the fact that he was imprisoned so often and every time he managed to escape apart from the last and they would kind of involve all sorts of contraptions in order to keep him there. Um, and he was manacled to the floor at one point and he escaped and so became this kind of celebrated folk hero. And when he was hanged at Tyburn, it was witnessed by 200,000 people, apparently. He was such a hero. So he was the, the original Jack the Lad, we think.
0: One more before we have our break. Uh, every, I heard this, somebody using this the other day and I thought, oh my goodness, this is absolutely... Gordon Bennett. I was watching an old episode because I love it of location, location, location. And Kirsty Alsop was at every other was saying, Oh, Gordon Bennett, Gordon Bennett this and I thought, mm-hmm. Well, I can't remember. Is it is it the newspaper man from Victorian Times, the American newspaper editor in New York, or isn't it? What is the origin of the expression Gordon Bennett?
1: Well, yes and no. So the way that Kirsty was using it is as a euphemism for Gore Blimey, I guess, and that again, is said to have been uttered by Peeping Tom. So that kind of links that nicely together. So it was the, the name was a useful euphemism because of the G and the B. But the real Gordon Bennett was also quite a large figure in the popular imagination because he was the son of a newspaper mogul who became famous actually for conducting the first ever interview covering the murder of a prostitute. This is in the 1830s. Anyway, his son took over the New York Herald, but apparently was more interested in good living. He had kind of lavish mansions and yachts, a really flamboyant lifestyle, drunken escapades that were said to scandalise New York society. And his name was always in the news. And because of that, people thought of his name, perhaps when exclaiming things. And as I said, it was quite useful. I I must stop using riff. It was quite a useful variation on Gorblamian and other stronger expletives. So he was a real person, but I think his name was also just handy. Well,
0: one of the expressions we use in our house, Kirsty may be saying Gordon Bennett all the time. I'm saying Susie Dent. Susie Dent will know that. (laughs) More of what Susie Dent knows in a moment after our break. And to take you through the break, I'm going to tease you with one of my friend John Lloyd's quiz questions. See if you know the answer to this. In ancient Egypt, what would you say to someone who had shaved off their eyebrows? Would you say, A, my God, what happened to your eyebrows? Or B is everything all right? Or C, good heavens, is that the time? Or D, sorry to hear about the cat. What would you say to someone who had shaved off their eyebrows? Answers in just a moment on Something Rhymes with Purple. Susie, please can you tell me what wanderlust means?
1: Well, it comes from German and it means a strong desire to travel. And Jazz, I know you love to tell anecdotes. So do you have a good travel story? I had an
0: amazing time in Iceland. I went pony trekking and the person who was in charge of the pony trekking told me that in those days, on a Thursday evening, there was no television in Iceland because people were supposed to be at home reading books.
1: Well, let me tell you about Explore Worldwide. They organise small group adventures that are led by local tour leaders so that you can fully immerse yourself in local knowledge whilst exploring a new country. The
0: most important part of the holiday is respecting local culture and environment.
1: And Explore can help you find expert tour leaders that can get you off the beaten track and into the heart of your adventure. Whether
0: it's a food and wine tour in the hilltop towns of Tuscany or a walking tour in the rice fields of Vietnam, Explore... take care of everything, putting the quality of their local tour leaders front and centre so you'll truly understand the wow factor of where you are.
1: If you're thinking about your next adventure, head to exploreworldwide.co.uk to find out more. There's
0: a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time.
1: Listen to Mel and good friend Andy Bush as they learn a great new skill and tell some brilliant stories, all whilst having some good, wholesome fun. In a nutshell, I took a pair of scissors and I went into my husband's wardrobe. Now, this comes from a shirt that I bought him that I know he doesn't like. So I'm testing him by... (laughs) Uh, This is brilliant. Yeah, by finding out when he discovers that the shirt has got a big patch out of the back of it.
0: Wow, and which area of the shirt is this taken from? Bottom right. Okay. (laughs) Listen now in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good podcast apps. This is Something Rhymes With Purple. And before our break, I gave you one of John Lloyd's quiz questions, asking you, in ancient Egypt, what would you say to someone who had shaved off their eyebrows? And what was the answer you would have given of the fall I gave you?
1: I think it can't be what's the time. So it's got to be B or D. Um, Either a cat, which is very specific, or is everything all right? I'm going to go, is everything all right?
0: Well, I'm afraid you made a mistake No, it's a cat. Of course it is, because cats were sacred in ancient Egypt. So if yours died, it was customary to shave your eyebrows to show you were in mourning.
1: Ah, uh, well, that's kind of links to B. You'd know that something was wrong.
0: We've got so many cats in the cat's room. We we call it the cat's room. It's kind of larder where, the, you know, we keep the cat litter and the cat food and everything. And we also keep all our old cats. We've been keeping cats for 50 years. So we've got an awful lot of them.
1: Hang on. When you say you've still got your cats, you mean we, stuff? We have
0: their cremated remains in jars. Oh. Oh. And we've been meaning to bury them in the garden. We haven't got round to it.
1: But now's the time. Now what is th- better time than lockdown to actually perform those important ceremonies? You've you've also got a stray cat that you've just adopted, haven't you?
0: It's not a stray. It it's the cat. It's a beautiful pedigree cat, a Maine Coon belonging to our next door neighbour. But she, the Maine Coon, prefers to live with us. I say with us, <laughs> with my wife. And very sweetly, the neighbours have allowed this. And to show you what generous neighbours they are, they continue to pay the vet's bills. Oh. My father knew a woman in Lancashire who had had her husband's cremated remains, uh, the ashes, put into an egg timer. And she said, hmm. he did now useful while he was alive. He can do something <laughs> useful, now he's dead. She was on her own, or on one's Todd. Was there ever a real person called Todd?
1: Yeah, that's a really nice link. And um, there was, yes, there was Todd Sloane. So Todd Sloane was a jockey who had quite a time of it really he for a time rode for the stables of the prince i can't remember which prince it was prince of wales anyway at the time so he was an american jockey and this was 19th century really that we're talking about and he too a bit like gordon bennett was a minor celebrity he was the one who introduced what's called the monkey crouch used by jockeys today you know that sort of hunched up forward sitting position on the horse. So he was the one who introduced that, but he also liked the finer things in life. He was arrested, I think, for insider betting. I think he's been exonerated of that since quite recently, but at the time he was absolutely disgraced. He was fired from all the stables that he rode for. I mean, he was quite an amazing jockey. He won so many prestigious prizes um but he was disgraced and died an early and very lonely death from cirrhosis of the liver because he turned to drink and todd sloan became rhyming slang for alone hence on your todd
0: 99 out of 100 people who listen to this podcast listen to it for your wisdom on words but one in 100 people listen to it to hear me drop names and can I tell you, have you ever been to the home of Frankie de Torre? Forgive me, the English home of Frankie de Tory. He has homes in many places. I wish. No. Well, he's delightful if ever you do go. He did kindly invite me over to his home. And uh, his kitchen is the most amazing room you have ever been to. It's a huge room. One whole wall is taken up with the largest refrigerator I have ever seen. And wow. in this refrigerator are row upon row of bottles of chilled champagne. And essentially, these jockeys have to have a very light weight. They have to carry as little weight as possible. And so yeah. many of them virtually live off champagne. And Frankie de Tori doesn't drink too much. He's a very disciplined human being. as he, and he couldn't hardly be so successful if he weren't. But he does enjoy a glass of chilled champagne, and he always has champagne available. Why is it in the kitchen? Well, because that's where he spends so much of his time, because one of the walls of the kitchen can disappear at the press of a button. And when it disappears behind that wall is a swimming pool. Within the water is a simulated horse, a mechanical horse with a saddle. And so Frankie de Tori gets into the swimming pool, sits on the saddle, water flows against him, and he rides on this saddle, taking his exercise that way. That's how he loses weight. How
1: amazing. Yeah.
0: I know this one. um, And see if I'm right. Uh, Titchy is that little Titch.
1: Okay. So the Titch who was the inspiration for this was one Charles Titchborn. Now, Charles Titchborn was someone who was the heir to a very large fortune, but was thought to have been lost at sea and perished. His mum didn't believe it, insisted that she was still alive, sent out detectives far and wide trying to find her son because she thought he'd ended up in New South Wales in Australia. And lo and behold, someone claiming to be her son stepped forth and said that he was Charles Titchborne, and he. This was despite the fact that her son was actually quite thin and wiry, and this this man was rather the opposite, and very florid of complexion. He was a butcher, I think. Anyway. Nobody believed him apart from the mother. And it ended up in a, in a big court case, which was notorious, again, in the papers, headlines for years and years and years. And he was found to be guilty of fraud. His name became extremely popular. And lots of stage performers then decided that they would take his name. And usually if they bore some resemblance to the man pretending to be Charles Tichborne. But there was one particular performer called Harry Ralph, who was absolutely tiny. And he called himself Little Titch. And Titch then became attached to the little rather than the fact that he looked like this claimant of this notorious case.
0: Very good. And you can catch Harry Ralph still on YouTube. And there's some marvellous late Victorian footage or early Edwardian footage of him. He wore huge shoes. A great man. Look, we've virtually run out of time. We haven't heard about the full Monty or going for a Burton. I mean, maybe we'll have to keep those for another day.
1: That's absolutely fine. There are so many people lurking behind the scenes in English. I love it.
0: Because we must deal with a couple of listeners' questions. Look, here's one. Hello from Christchurch, New Zealand. We love your podcast and always find out something interesting in each of them. Just wondered if you knew the origin of these words, please. And Mark and Joe from Christchurch, New Zealand. Scuppered, quibble and dollop.
1: Oh, wow. Okay, well, I think start with dollop. I think that's just onomatopoeic. You get a dollop of something. You can almost imagine it being sort of dolloped or plopped onto a plate. Um, Absolutely wonderful, that one. Quibble, that goes back to the Latin, I think, and quis meaning who. And it began to be associated with all sorts of kind of legal niceties in court documents where people were trying to find out not just who did it but who said what etc and so quiz and quib became a quibble so kind of you know just being very pernickety and arguing over tiny points. I think that's where that one came from And the third one was scupper. Oh scupper scupper um, well that was actually military originally and it meant to annihilate someone to kill them then later it was applied to ships and that was quite late actually the sense of sinking a ship and scuppering it is as late as the 1970s and we think that was because it was confused with scuttle But quite where it comes from, we don't know. There's an opening on a ship called the Scupper, which allows water to drain. So maybe if a fallen sailor rolled into the scuppers, you know, that gave us the sense of scuppering an enterprise or something these days. But definitely the first uses we have is military slang.
0: Well done. And here's another international one. I think this is coming from Paris, France. Today, I was listening to you discuss the use of the phrase Charlie's dead to inform a girl that her petticoat was showing. In my youth here in Glasgow, uh, uh, we would say it's raining (laughs) in Paris. I saw the word Paris, I got excited. I have no idea why. Actually, I see the word Glasgow, I should get excited. The ubiquitous chip is almost my favourite restaurant. Anyway, it's raining in Paris as a uh, expression meaning Charlie's dead, meaning you're better petticoat is show
1: No idea. It sounds like, again, it sounds like it's been plucked out of thin air. Um, there may be something behind it. Perhaps the purple people know. I honestly don't know the answer, just as no one seems to know why we say Charlie's dead. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. But if anyone does, let us know.
0: If you are a purple person and you want to let us know, it's purple at something else.com. That's something else.com without a G in something else. Um, Good. Have you got one for us?
1: I have. I have. I've got one from Holly Tyerman McBean. What a great name. Hi, Susie and Giles. Um, My mum and I are regular listeners and love the podcast. It's nice to listen and feel just that little bit closer together, despite my mum living in southern Spain and me living in South Wales. How lovely. You mentioned 1984 by George Orwell fairly recently. That would have been you, Giles, I think. And it inspired me to dig my copy out. I have tried to read it probably close to 1984 times, not 1,984 times and never succeeded in getting past chapter five. So I have started reading it again for the 1,985th time and two things have stood out to me. In chapter four, history is described as a palimpsest, Do you know the origin? And secondly, in chapter five, the bar in the canteen is described as a mere hole in the wall. Was that coined for 1984? And when did it become popular for an ATM or cash point? Good luck to you both during the lockdown. And thank you for continuing to make podcasts, Sarah. Welcome break in the storm clouds of current life. That is so lovely. I love the fact that Holly's mum and she both listen in very different parts of the world and that it gives them some sense of, of being you know being connected i love that so thank you holly for for writing in um so palimpsest is something that kind of has ghosts of what went before really because it's particularly applied to paper or parchment for example where you can see words that were written underneath so it's kind of like a ancient form of recycling i guess so palimpsest itself comes from the greek for scraped again. So something has been rubbed out by scraping, um, referring to the method with which they kind of erased one layer and then you wrote upon the paper again. Um, Hole in the wall was Holly's second one. That was originally quite an insulting term for any dive. So it was like a small obscure place and then especially one in the US where bootlegged alcohol was sold. And then it was applied to businesses that just were a bit dingy and then the person running the business as well for a while and then i think the transfer to you know to the atm the the cash points that we know was simply because they are literally holes in the wall um and they've lost that past of either illicit alcohol and you know something being quite kind of dingy and divy and simply refer to what it is a hole in the wall but i love that that email thank you holly
0: So, and Holly, may I encourage you to persist with 1984? I think it's a fascinating book. We might do a whole show about George Orwell because I am a great admirer of the advice that he gave for good writing. He did a wonderful piece about how to write good English. And, well, it hasn't been bettered. And maybe we could talk about it one day on the podcast. What we need to talk about today on the podcast is your trio. What are your three words that are going to introduce us to this
1: week? The first one is a little bit of a reference to the fact that we well a lot of us a lot of my friends as well are finding it quite hard to sleep and when we do sleep we have very vivid dreams not all of which are very pleasant sometimes a couple of my friends have mentioned they're actually quite scared of going to sleep because they don't like the sort of nightmares that are coming their way and so there is a word for that if you have a kind of morbid fear of lying down you are cleanophobic now, I've mentioned clinomania before, which is an overwhelming desire to lie down, but this is clenophobia. So if you're actually quite scared of lying down because of what may come if you fall asleep, clenophobic. The second one, it's just a kind of term from rhetoric, actually, but I quite like this, like this one, is paralipsis. Do you know that one, Giles?
0: Paralypsis, no? Yes.
1: Okay, paralipsis is mentioning the fact that you're not going to mention something. So if you say, I'm not even going to bring up Giles the time you came in at 2am and passed out in the hall, that is paralipsis because you're making a big thing about not making a thing about something. And the third one, I just like this one because it's playful and I like the sound of it. It's skimble, scamble with a K, skimble, scamble, And it just describes a speech or writing or a brain first thing in the morning that is confused and incoherent.
0: And of course, one of... T.S. Eliot's famous Cats in Possum's Old Book of Practical Cats was Skimble Shanks. Look, Susie, we've run out of time. I'm not going to give you a quotation this week or a poem this week. I'm keeping those up my sleeve. I've got so excited by the quiz questions that I got from John Lloyd. I'm going to share one of those with you and I'm going to give you the answer next week. Uh, We were talking about George Orwell, 1984, that was originally to be called 1948. The publisher decided to change the title. This is my quiz question for you, Susie. Don't answer it today. We'll answer it if you know the answer next week. What was the original title of Joseph Heller's novel, Catch-22? Was it going to be called Catch Back? Was it going to be called Gotcha? Was it going to be called Catch 18? Or was it going to be called Catch Me If You Can? We will tell you all about that next week.
1: Please don't forget to give us a nice review or recommend us to a friend if you've enjoyed today. And if you have any question you'd like us to answer or if you'd just like to get in touch, um, especially during lockdown, if something's on your mind, you can email us at purple at something else.com. And as we always say, there is no G in something else.
0: Something Rhymes with Purple is a Something Else production produced by Lawrence Bassett with additional production from Steve Ackerman, Grace Laker, and Mr. Skimble Scamble himself, Gully!